Welcome to AUA's Metastatic Hormone Sensitive Prostate Cancer Expert Guidance for Urologists. The AUA would like to thank Astellis, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, and Pfizer Inc. for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. Yeah, okay, great. So uh, activity goal is to increase our understanding of how to translate the, basically the, you know, the recent advanced prostate cancer guidelines, which were the AUA, ASTRO and SUO, all in collaboration and, and you know, translating these into clinical practice in order to improve the care of their patients, of our patients. Um, go ahead and next slide. And we've got these learning objectives outlined here. We're, we're going to work on identifying the active agents and how they work for treatment of metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. We'll talk about the evidence and outcomes um, in, in the treatment of, again, metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, specifically as they relate to the newly released guideline. We'll review how to improve diagnostic and therapeutic decision-making um, in, in, in application. We'll talk about specific cases. We'll analyze breakthrough treatments and management of advanced um, metastatic hormone, prostate, hormone sensitive prostate cancer and then describe the indications and combinations for treatment with approved agents in the management of MHSPC. So I, th I think that gives me the chance to now in in introduce our panelists. We've, we're really lucky. We have an amazing set of uh, multidisciplinary panelists. Um, first, I'll introduce Dr. Kelvin Moses. He's Associate Professor of Urology and uh, Fellowship Director for Urologic Oncology. He's Director of the Comprehensive Prostate Cancer Clinic at Vanderbilt. He has tremendous expertise in advanced prostate cancer. He conducts uh, really important research on health disparities, and thank you, Kelvin. We're very fortunate to have you here. Um, next, I'll introduce uh, Dr. Anna Aparicio. Dr. Aparicio is Associate Professor in the Department of uh, General Urinary Medical Oncology at MD Anderson. She's a leader in both translational science and clinical trials, and in my opinion, one of the rare individuals who can bring laboratory findings truly into clinical practice, and so we can't thank enough for joining us here tonight. And then finally, um, Dr. Ali Berlin. Dr. Berlin is a clinician scientist and radiation oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. He's also medical director of the Smart Cancer Center and data science programs at Princess Margaret. He has expertise in molecular and MR imaging. Uh, and I would say it's just, it's just a well-known fact that the team in, up in Toronto exemplifies multi-D care. They're a few hours north of us and, and we look at them and really try to learn from what they're doing. So thank you, Ali, for joining us. It's great to have all of you here. So um, let's, you know, let's get going. Um, so we're going to start by identifying the active agents and mechanism of action. That's the, the first segment. This is broken up into four separate segments. Um, and I'll start with Kelvin. Can you remind us how GNRH agonist therapy works and contrast that with the GNRH receptor antagonists? Sure. Uh, hopefully everybody can hear me well. Thanks, Dr. Morgan and everybody. So GNRH agonists are uh, compounds that stimulate the GNRH receptor in the hypothalamus. Uh, and this causes release of FSH and LH from the pituitary. And this is part of the hypothalamic pituitary testis axis. And so it, with, with it being an agonist, it actually causes an initial flare of testosterone due to release of LH. However, continued stimulation desensitizes the pituitary and thus suppresses testosterone, 
at 95% or greater uh, reduction, which is called castration level. In comparison, GnRH antagonists compete for binding to the receptors and thus uh, block GnRH action uh, within the hypothalamus and in and, and the rest of the body. Uh, the difference being that you don't see the flare of testosterone. So this provides fast suppression of testosterone without a surge. Um, the uh, Prostate Cancer Working Group 2 uh, defined castration level of testosterone as less than 50 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, and that's pretty much used as a standard. However, there are some experts, uh, including some recent or panels uh, earlier this decade in San Antonio and Paris, suggesting that uh, castration level should be defined as less than 20 nanograms per deciliter because that's what's routinely achieved by surgical orchiectomy. Uh, some of the common short-term and long-term side effects include uh, fatigue, hot flash, weight gain or weight loss, erectile dysfunction, loss of muscle mass, bone depletion, uh, increased risk of cardiovascular or thromboembolic events, uh, and increased risk of either diabetes or, or metabolic syndrome type appearance. And the vast majority of these are given either intramuscular or subcutaneous in one, three, four, or six month formulations. Awesome, thank you. That was a phenomenal summary. Um, so now, you know, that, that covers kind of our foundation, but now how about the next generation AR targeted therapies that are available in this space? Maybe Anna, can you walk us through some of those? Sure. So uh, we have, uh, obviously, the uh, two sort of general types of uh, uh, secondary uh, hormone agents. One is the abiraterone acetate, and this is a drug that inhibits uh, CYP17. CYP17 is an enzyme of the steroid hormone synthesis pathway, and it's expressed in testicular and prostate and adrenal tissues, and it basically results in the synthesis of androgens in these organs. So when you inhibit CYP17 with abiraterone, um, it results in a reduction in the synthesis of androgens, uh, and that's its mechanism of action. It was first approved in 2011 for the treatment of metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and uh, later in 2018 for the treatment of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Its most common toxicities are hypertension, hypokalemia, transaminitis, and uh, cardiac toxicity and fatigue. It's important to note that the hypokalemia and hypertension happen because the inhibition of CYP17 also results in an increase in ACTH, which in turn drives an increase in the of, uh, cortisol precursors with mineral corticoid activity. So that's the reason to co-administer abiraterone with low-dose prednisone or other glucocorticoid that will block this compensatory increase in ACTH and thus reduce the incidence and severity of hypertension and hypokalemia. The other uh, drugs approved in this space uh, that have a hormonal action are enzalutamide and apalutamide. These are second-generation non-steroidal androgen receptor inhibitors, and what they do is that they compete with uh, androgens for the ligand binding domain of the androgen receptor, and this doesn't allow the AR to get into the nucleus and do what it does there, bind to the DNA and um, uh, unleash this androgen receptor-mediated transcription. 
And zalutamide was also first FDA approved in 2016 for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer like gabapentin. Apalutamide was approved a little later in 2018, and its approval is for non-metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, although, of course, as one would imagine, based on the mechanism of action, there's no reason why it shouldn't work. Um, and uh, they were actually both approved in 2019 for the treatment of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Again, common side effects include hypertension, fatigue, um, cognitive and memory impairment, um, and there's been uh, reports of falls and fractures and, and syncope. It's interesting that they have a slightly different structure, chemical structure, and that apparently justifies uh, two unique uh, uh, toxicities of apalutamide that are rash, uh, which actually can be uh, reasonably severe in about 5% of patients, um, but can go away with uh, you know, holding the drug and, and sort of topical treatment. And the other thing that's interesting with apalutamide is that it results in faster metabolism and clearance of thyroid hormone. And so that can cause an increase in TSH and, and hypothyroidism, although generally it's mild and asymptomatic, and it occurs, occurs mostly in patients that had a prior history of hypothyroidism. Both of them are known to cross the blood-brain blood barrier, and in earlier uh, trials, there was a concern that enzalutamide increased um, the risk of seizures. Although in larger trials, this was uh, actually, it didn't, uh, wasn't borne out. Although of course, people that had seizure risks were excluded from the larger trials. So uh, that remains uh, uh, part of the indication. And the only other thing in enzalutamide and apalutamide that I think is worth notice, noting is that they can both decrease the plasma exposure to drugs such as warfarin uh, via the cytochrome uh, P450 enzyme inhibition. So one has to be a little bit careful with drug-drug interactions when using these trials. Uh, wow, thanks. That was great. Um, so, I mean, it seems that first-generation antiangiogens like flutamide, bicalutamide have fallen out of favor. Ali, would you say that that's, that's correct? Yeah, totally. So actually there was a randomized trial in the late 90s published by the UK group comparing Casolex monotherapy versus castration. And it was shown that patients under receiving uh, for metastatic disease had a uh, casodex had worse overall survival uh, versus castration, either surgical or medical. Um, and it was more evident in the M1 disease. I think the 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 popular uh, clique of the use of antiandrogens is because they're better tolerated because they it's known that these first generation agents actually have some partial blockage of the AR pathways and also have some agonist effects, some of them. So obviously the patient's quality of life is better, but in terms of oncologic outcomes is worse. Uh, there's a different topic that it's a bit tangential, which is in the M0 biochemical recurrent, where these agents may have a role in very elderly patients with shortened survival, but again, acknowledging a compromise in terms of oncologic outcomes. And, and now I, I would say even the tendency when it's M0 recurrence is even withhold any hormonal intervention. So I think the pendulum has shifted away from these drugs and they're not recommended. Probably the residual indication is in some combinations with radiotherapy trials are still being used. And the other one is initially uh, as um, Kelvin described for controlling the flare 
which we know now by HERO trial can be up to a 50% increase on the testosterone in the span of the first one, two weeks after initiation of LHRH agonist. No so much obviously with the antagonists or the new oral agents, but when you're using those uh, agonists is recommended to breach initially with antiandrogens to avoid flare in patients that that rise in testosterone can boost or, or let's call brackets inflame your tumor and could cause symptoms or progression in context of cord compression, so on and so forth. So that's kind of the role that they have now in this space. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point about primary radiotherapy. It seems like a lot of the, the clinical trials that have been historically you know, run and I mean, 20 plus old data uses these drugs, but even for treatment of uh, of men with localized prostate cancer undergoing radiotherapy, it's rarely used now, right? Ex extremely rare. Even in the salvage setting, there yeah. was the G2C and the RTOG trial using bicalutamide for two years, even though it's level one evidence and a phase three trial. It's very rarely used in practice. So I think these yeah. are confined now to the management Done. of the flare. Great. Super. So, so the last kind of key class of agents we haven't discussed in this section is chemotherapy. So um, docetaxel obviously has has a role in this setting. Maybe Anna, can you remind us how, how this works and how this is different and how you think about this in patients with uh, metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer? Sure. So um, docetaxel is, of course, a cytotoxic chemotherapy. And what it does is it binds to the beta tubulin. And, and so it, it prevents the uh, depolymerization of the microtubules during mitosis. And basically what happens is uh, cells can't divide and they die. Um, the other uh, thing that it seems to do is that because it, it, it sort of uh, prevents this um, uh, or stabilizes the microtubules, it inhibits cellular trafficking of protein. And one of the proteins that is, that is inhibited, the, one of the, uh, uh, these proteins is the, actually the androgen receptor. Um, it looks like docetaxel can also inhibit the uh, androgen receptor translocation into the nucleus um, and uh, its expression in vitro. So, you know, the, the relevance of that in vivo remains to be determined. It was first FDA approved back in 2004 for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. Um, uh, and uh, as uh, most people know, uh, the most common toxicities are alopecia, fatigue, um, anemia, um, uh, diarrhea, uh, nail bed changes, and uh, peripheral neuropathy. Generally, these are not severe, um, but it does depend a little bit on the performance status of the patient. And uh, you do see, so clinical trials report febrile neutropenias in anywhere from 8 to 15% of patients. Awesome. And so, so this, this is this slide that's up right now um, that th those of you who are watching live can see. Um, I imagine all of this is downloadable later for, for anybody who's listening to this even later. But this, this is the summary of the active agents um, and uh, the adverse effects. I would just highlight the answer to one of the questions was, is on here. So you can take a look for apiraterone. Um, this, it's, you know, it's important just to keep in mind that these, some of them have overlapping mechanisms of action, but the side effects are, you know, are different as, as everybody's highlighted. Um, so let's go to the next segment. Um, we'll come up, call up the next slide here. So the, this is, this is where we get to really start digging into the um, AUA, Astro SUO guideline. Uh, um, and 
you know, I guess I'm a little bit biased here because I was on the guideline committee, but this is a really excellent guideline. It was developed in a multidisciplinary fashion. It included urologists, of course, um, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists. So, um, you know, there, there are a lot of issues that need to be teased apart. And so this, um, th this guideline is the first one that really spans multiple disease settings in advanced prostate cancer. So there previously was a guideline focused on cashier resistant prostate cancer. And this spans basically from the time of biochemical recurrence following kind of maximal local therapy. So once local therapy options have been um, all used up, so if biochemical recurrence at that point, all the way from MHSPC, including non-metastatic cashier resistant prostate cancer, including metastatic cashier resistant prostate cancer. And so to make this guideline, you know, it went through both an intense data review, multiple iterations of virtual and in-person meetings to come up with the guidelines. And the, you know, these AUA guidelines, as all the AUA guidelines do, they include both the relative strength of the evidence and the specific strength of the recommendations. Um, and, and those you know, get different categories and also the, um, the clinical uh, um, practice recommendations. So I just would urge everybody to take a look at those if you haven't had a, had a chance already. Um, I would also just point out that it's a living document and it, it does get updated over, over time. So it continues to stay current. Um, so let's we spend some time kind of thinking about the uh, first initial evaluation of a patient with metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. And I'll start with you, Kelvin. In a new patient, in a patient with a new presentation of MHSPC, is a biopsy necessary? Yes, it is. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, you do need histologic confirmation uh, of the type of disease. And, and it can give you some other information if there's a small cell component, neuroendocrine, something like that. Uh, and in our experience, of course, a medical oncologist is uh, not going to let us move forward until we, we do have a diagnosis. Uh, secondly, that tissue can be used for genomic uh, sampling which could have some implications for treatment later down the road. And I believe we're gonna be talking about that later. Now in a patient where they cannot tolerate a biopsy or if the um, uh, visible sites are inaccessible, then you can go ahead and treat. It, would, it doesn't really make sense to delay someone if their PSA is 500 and they've got skeletal metastases, like you know that that's prostate cancer and obviously go ahead and treat uh, someone. Uh, but certainly in an ideal situation, you would like to have a biopsy confirmation. Yeah, agreed. Um, so now, you know, in, in that patient with an initial presentation, what, what does the initial staging evaluation look like? What, what, do you, what scans are you ordering? Yeah, so uh, if you look at all the clinical trials, what, what is considered conventional imaging would be a CT or an MRI. And this would include at least the abdomen and pelvis, and then uh, a technetium bone scan. Now, obviously, there are some who have access to more advanced imaging like Axiomen or PSMA, and that certainly are more sensitive uh, type tests, but certainly the baseline would be a CT and a bone scan. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to the, the next generation Im imaging a little bit later, because that, that is potentially going to change a lot of this discussion. and. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us know in what ways um, that we can guess. So, you know, I mean, when we talk about this, you know, new a patient who's newly diagnosed um, with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, I think the key trials have sought to classify disease extent 
And that's kind of been a really fundamental piece of, of kind of assessing prognosis, but they've done it in different ways. So Ali, maybe you could cover a little bit on, on how they've done it and how we should think about um, disease volume in this setting. Sure. So, well, I think it's very important to have some clarity in these concepts because as you mentioned, these were either selection criteria within the trials that demonstrated benefit on certain of certain groups in a subset of patients or were stratification factors that show differential benefit uh, in uh, uh, across different populations within the M1 space. Uh, so, and, and this has evolved over time. There's more nuanced understanding and there was data from, um, from the Stampede group presented in ESMO a couple of years ago, also showing that maybe some of these definitions may, may vary in terms of the effect that it's observed. But just to try to keep it simple. So one is the latitude trial that uh, we're gonna discuss probably after that explore the use of aviraturon and they define patients with M1 and high risk which for them was the presence of two out of three features being Gleason 8 to 10, three or more bone metastases and or the presence of visceral metastases. So those two permutations or the three of them will categorize the patient as high risk. Then there was the definition of volume using the uncharted trial, which was a trial that explored the benefit of those ataxel over a backbone of AVP. And they defined low and high volume disease um, and the high volume was the definition essentially, which was more based on disease burden and was again, visceral metastasis. And that's where the confusion may come with the high risk because it's the same factor. Instead of three bones or more, these were four or more with one of these lesions being outside of the pelvis or the spine. So it's essentially those two criteria that make it. So it's four or more bone metastases with the caveat that one has to be out of the spine or the pelvis and or visceral metastasis. So any of those will categorize as a high volume. And this is the definition used by the AUA guidelines. So that's something important yeah, to consider. Perfect. And, and there's now others emerging like the SWOG trial that we'll talk, talk, talk later, uh, which are a little bit more um, frugal, I would say in the definition, but, but it's better to keep the high risk and the high volume kind of definitions crystal clear as much as possible. Thanks. And I'm just going to kind of interrupt or train of thought for one sec, because we, we got a good question online. I'd encourage um, those who are attending to please you know, feel free to post questions. We love it. Um, the, the question here was, was asking kind of about what you were discussing earlier in terms of the first generation antiangiogens like bicalutamide and whether, you know, do, are they truly not useful anymore, especially in that M1 setting? Maybe you can just answer that briefly, Ali. Yeah, so I think as, as monotherapy, they should not be used, uh, um, then that's the main recommendation. I think in the M0 setting of a biochemical recurrence, they might have a transient role, but it's now um, hard uh, to suggest that as a primary or a level, a high level evidence, because now there are other drugs emerging in that space with survival benefits. So I would say um, they do have certain role in patients where you want to have some intermediate maneuvers before, let's say, being more aggressive on the treatment because other considerations outside of the disease. Uh, but I don't think as a monotherapy should be used in okay, M1 thanks. disease. Thanks. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about management now. And um, it's, I think, mind-boggling to think about how management in this disease setting has changed over the last five plus years. 
Um, and I, at least I have to think about this really in chronological order. And so I start, you know, I start with Dose Taxol, which, um, which was kind of the first new agent to come on the scene. And so maybe Anna, could you walk us through the key studies um, as they relate to Dose Taxol and MHSPC? Sure. So um, there were uh, three trials that ex uh, examined the effect of docetaxel in addition to uh, ADT. Um, and they were interestingly conducted anywhere between 2004 all the way to 2013. So the first one was GTEC15. This was uh, done in France. Uh, it was 385 patients. And um, they uh, took four years to accrue, and this was published in 2013. Uh, the second one was charted, um, and this was a 790 patient trial that uh, accrued between 2006 and 2012 in the U.S. and was published in 2015. And then there was Stampede Arm C, uh, where they compared a number of arms, but including ADT plus docetaxel to ADT uh, alone. And this was now 1,086 patients, and they accrued uh, for, uh, over the course of uh, several years, from 2005 to 2013, and published in 2016. Um, they all allowed ECOG performance status of two. They uh, excluded active cardiac disease. Uh, they did allow prior ADT, um, say, in the setting of radiation or what have you. And they, uh, they had to have chemotherapy uh, started within about six to 120 days of randomization. Um, they had fairly similar populations uh, in terms of age um, and ECOG performance status, but there was certainly a lower percentage of patients in the stampede arm C that met those criteria of high volume or high risk disease. Um, and there were slightly higher numbers of, uh, or percentages of patients that had visceral disease in, G in, uh, in the charted trial. Um, interestingly, uh, the trial with the highest percentage of de novo metastatic disease was charted, um, and Stampede RMC had uh, a, a slightly lower rate, so 73% in charted and 59% uh, in Stampede RMC. Um, both charted and stampede arm C, as you know, uh, showed a benefit in uh, terms of overall survival. Uh, hazard ratios were 0.72 for charted and 0.81 in stampede. DTEG did not. A hazard ratio was 1.01. There's been a lot written about that. Uh, did it have to do with uh, the, pop the uh, population? Were they underpowered? Um, there have been subgroup analysis uh, suggesting that, again, it had to do with the volume of disease. I think a really interesting uh, fact about these three trials that sort of speaks to the heterogeneity of the populations and why we have to be very cautious uh, in making uh, comparisons between trials is the fact that the median overall survival of the control arm, so of the ADT arm, uh, ranged from uh, 44 months in charted to 71 months in stampede arm C, whereas um, in uh, you know the control the experimental arm went from 58 uh, months to 81 months. Um, so I think those are uh, interesting uh, facts. Yeah, cross trial comparisons trials. are no good. It's, I think Correct. we can't we say that enough. Them. We should not yeah. do them. It's, and we try, and we shouldn't. And people try. So 
we don't. A lot. Um, a lot. Yes. And it's, yeah, it's, anyway, it's tempting, but don't do it. Um, so so that, that, that was awesome. And so then, so we had dose attacks, and then along comes abiraterone um, with trials looking at abiraterone plus ADT against ADT alone. And so, Anna, maybe can you just keep, keep going? Sure. So here we have two large studies, approximately the same numbers. Uh, latitude was about 1,100, well, 1,200 patients on stampede arm G was 990 uh, patients. I, it's uh, always is interesting because the latitude was conducted in 235 countries, which um, is, uh, I find an interesting fact, but more or less around the same time. So latitude was conducted between 2013 through 2014 and Stampede RMG between 2011 and 2014. Of course, Stampede RMG was mostly in the UK and Switzerland participated. Both of them were, um, uh, published in 2017. And again, as Ali mentioned, uh, the latitude uh, included patients uh, or mandated that patients had at least two of the high-risk features of Gleason greater than eight, more than three bone lesions, visceral metastasis, which was somewhat different from all the other um, studies. Uh, it was uh, it, uh, the it, latitude also, I think the difference between latitude and, and stampede is the ECOG uh, zero patients were about half in latitude, whereas stampede, uh, it was a better performance uh, or at least reported of 78%. And again, in stampede RMG, about half of the patients had high volume or high risk disease uh, as defined either by charted or by uh, latitude. Um, so I think those are important differences to note. And again, uh, now this time, both of the trials demonstrated an improvement in overall survival with hazard ratios of 0.66 and 0.61, respectively. Um, there was a median overall survival was 36 months in the control arm of latitude uh, and 53 months uh, in the experimental arm. Stampede didn't report the median, but at three years, um, 83% uh, of men were alive in the experimental arm of abiraterone and 76% of them uh, were alive in the control arm. So these uh, made abiraterone uh, a, a standard for uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Yeah, yeah. And, and then so if we have that data and then of course on the heels of that, you know, we get additional data of, um, as you would expect, right? everybody's waiting, okay, what's going to be the next drug to come as we have other agents in the study. So Kelvin, can you touch on what, what came next after abiraterone? Sorry about that. I was muted. So yeah, the, the uh, second, second generation anti-androgen, as Dr. Aparicio noted, these are competitive binders of the antigen receptor and also block cellular translocation as well as nuclear transcription. Uh, and so there's two agents that fall under this category. Uh, the first of which is apalutamide. This was studied in the TITAN trial. Uh, apalutamide is an inhibitor of the ligand binding domain of the antigen receptor. And Titan was a phase three trial, which was published in 2019 in New England Journal. And they randomly assigned 1,052 patients with metastatic castration sensitive prostate cancer to receive either apalutamide or placebo with ADT. And what they showed was a 52% reduction in the risk of radiographic progression or death. 
And a lot of trials are using that sort of as a composite uh, outcome. And overall survival at two years was 82.4% in the apalutamide arm versus 73.5% in the placebo group for a hazard ratio of 0.67. So essentially a 33% re risk uh, and re reduction. Uh, the frequency of severe adverse events was actually quite similar at 42.2% and 408 uh, But as Dr. Aparicio noted before, one important uh, side effect is a rash. And that actually occurs at a meeting of about 80 days after starting treatment. Uh, so this is something to counsel your patients on. Uh, the other drug in this class is enzalutamide. This was studied in two different trials. Uh, the first was uh, Enzimet, which is a phase three trial primarily performed in Australia and New Zealand. They had 1,125 patients who received enzalutamide or bicalutamide with androgen deprivation. And the primary endpoint was overall survival. They too showed a 33% reduction in risk of death in the enzalutamide group as well as significantly improved progression-free survival. Uh, there were more discontinuations in the enzalutamide arm uh, and importantly, fatigue, hypertension, and seizure are some important side effects uh, to note. The other phase three trial of enzalutamide uh, was the ARCHES trial. Uh, and this time, uh, Enza was compared to placebo. This was uh, published in uh, JCO in 2019. They had 1,150 patients and they showed a 61% reduction in the risk of radiographic progression or death, as well as significant improvements in PSA progression, skeletal events, uh, and initiation of new anti-neoplastic therapy. As was expected, hypertension, fatigue, hot flash, falls, and seizure risk were higher. Uh, they're not comparatively different compared to what was seen in previous trials. And so on the basis of, of uh, these trials, both apalutamide and enzalutamide have been approved in this space. Awesome, thank you. So um, I guess, you know, there's one other treatment modality in this space that's, that's in the guidelines um, that is maybe a bit controversial um, and that's local treatment to the prostate. And so Ali, can you walk us through the potential rationale, what the role is? It's, you know, I, I guess the, the controversy I would say is that it's in the AUA guidelines. It maybe doesn't have as strong of a recommendation as some would say that it should have. Um, and I'd love to get your perspective. Okay, so you're giving me all the controversial questions. So- I um, love it. I know you can handle it. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So the rational, I think there, I, I like to always put some context on the things and, and, and then you'll get kind of my opinion towards the end, but Radiotherapy, we did a track record showing that in locally advanced disease, for example, hormones alone versus hormone plus radiotherapy, radiotherapy does render an improvement in survival. And those were the PR3 Canadian trial and the Scandinavian trial, and, and that kind of set the use of radiotherapy in locally advanced disease where you could have presumed hormones alone would have been sufficient. And then in terms of when the disease is metastatic of, uh, let's let's start thinking like oligometastatic and I'll get into that. There's obviously the primary tumor is a source of seeding. Uh, there's refined studies, um, 
recently, too, not recently anymore, the time is frozen now, but a few years ago published in Nature showing the patterns of seeding and also metastases can seed other metastases. So it's not only that the primary is the primary source of, of metastases and also there are preclinical data showing the priming of the metastatic niche by the tumor secreting some um, uh, regulatory substances and that can actually favor the, 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 host, the homing of metastases. So with that in mind, and also evidence from other malignancies, for example, kidney lesions, there were trials that were posed to actually test these questions. So one is a Dutch trial called the HORAT trial. Um, published one, two years ago in, in the European Urology, and those were 400, 430 participants um, that had a, a PS, high PSAs and bone predominant lesions because they were staged with bone scans. So that's one of the things to consider on that trial. And were randomized to uh, external beam radiotherapy to the prostate only plus ADT versus ADT alone overall not showing any benefit in, in survival. So that's an important thing. The trial was negative, uh, but in a subgroup, which they defined those with less than five metastases, uh, there was a, a kind of a signal that those patients may have uh, improved survival, which was not significant, but they did have progression-free survival benefits. And then there's the Stampede H trial, similar randomization, ADT alone versus ADT plus, um, radiotherapy to the prostate only. This is conventional image uh, uh, determined the M1, so CT plus minus MRI and bone scan. And again, the trial overall did not show benefit in overall survival in the entire population, but they did have a pre-specified subgroup analysis, which was not a stratification factor, but were well balanced between the arms of low and high volume disease. And those that had low volume disease as per charted, so just to recapitulate four, uh, that this would be less than four metastases, bone metastases and abscess of, of visceral metastases. Um, so those men did had a benefit in terms of overall survival and progression-free survival. So at three years, survival was 73% for those without radiotherapy increased to 81 on those that received radiotherapy. Um, and the toxicity was fairly low, about 5% of grade three, four toxicity. So that's a kind of the therapeutic index uh, thought. So what do I think about all this? And uh, if, you, like, if you close your eyes, I would say like the way I frame this in my mind is that in the Y axis, you have benefit of local therapies. And in the X axis in the graph, you have effectiveness of systemic therapies. And that would be a curve like this. So the better the systemic therapies start to become, their local therapies have a plateau of benefit. But theoretically, if systemic therapies are extraordinary, at some point, the role of local therapies may decay over time because now the systemic therapy can take care of the distant disease and the local high burden disease. And the, the bulk of disease moves this curve like this to the side. So if you have low burden of disease, even a so-so systemic therapy, the local therapy may be more relevant because now you're tackling a small proportion or a significant proportion of the overall bulk of disease. So that's kind of my interpretation. Yeah. I think as systemic therapies start to improve, local therapy may improve. And that's one of the key criticism because now we don't know with abiraterone, for example, 
where does this benefit of the local therapy uh, sits? Because now you can say, well, maybe now they're so good, the systemic therapies, that local therapies do not have such a benefit. So I think that's kind of the argument where it yeah, sits. Thanks. Uh, and that needs a subgroup analysis again. So I think it has to be taken with a grain of salt and yep. patient by patient. Thank you. That, that's, that's beautiful. I love the way of conceptualizing that. The, um, the, you know, the slide here just shows a summary of the published trials and some of the ongoing trials that I think are going to be informative in this space. I see a question that somebody posted that I'm not seeing the curve that is being discussed. That the curve is it's not a, there's no slide of it. It's just a curve I think in our minds, but it makes a lot of sense I think. Um, so we're going to go to the next segment, and I'm going to make this a little bit of a lightning round because if you know I, I I'm sure we could hang out and talk about this all night, um, but the AUA will be mad at me. So um, we'll um, we're going to talk about kind of just really quick bullets on what are they like the key issues that are coming at us and they're major issues. And so first is germline testing. Kelvin, what, this is a big deal, especially in the metastatic setting. Why is it so important? Yeah, it's been huge and it's, it's becoming much more commonly done in this space. And some, some studies that looked at familial syndromes of men with prostate cancer, then also association uh, with families with a strong history of breast or ovarian cancer really brought out the importance of BRCA1 and 2. And then if you look at the Pritchard study uh, from last year in New England Journal, they found that 11.8% of 692 men with metastatic prostate cancer had germline mutations, most commonly BRCA, ATM, CHECK2, and PALB2. Uh, and it was actually not dependent on a family history of cancer or aged diagnosis. And this rate is significantly higher than those with localized prostate cancer or with no prostate or no cancer history at all. Um, and it does have implications for types of treatment. We've heard about uh, rucaparib and olaparib as far as uh, targeted uh, uh, PARP inhibitor therapy and uh, obviously for family counseling. Yeah, and maybe can we can put up that slide that we have for, the, for this segment now because that, that got the Pritchard data on there. And it's a key study for those who haven't seen it, New England Journal of Medicine 2016 that shows the, um, the prevalence of germline mutations in the setting and, and the potential impact, of course, that we now think about is in the castrate resistance setting, the potential use of PARP inhibitors. But note that's not applicable at this point to the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. Maybe eventually we'll have data that tells us otherwise. Um, and what about somatic testing? So this is the germline data. What about, do, yeah. do we sequence these so, tumors? Very quickly. Um, so somatic testing, as you all know, is, uh, is uh, indicated in certainly in the man management of advanced uh, prostate cancer. And the big question is, when do you do the somatic testing? Um, Although, so about 20% of uh, uh, metastatic prostate cancers carry alterations in genes that are critical for DNA repair and that may that predict for benefit from, from certain drugs, right? PARP inhibitors and possibly uh, platinum agents. Um, the issue is really the management changes for those alterations once the indication is there. And for the time being, the PARP inhibitors are uh, indicating in this, indicated in the setting of castrate resistant disease. So um, uh, when possible, it's possibly a good idea to try to 
uh, look for these alterations in the castrate resistance setting. Having said that, a lot of the actionable mutations are present in the primary tumor, um, but there are a couple of issues with that. One is it can, you know, the archival tumor can be old and, and, and have low yield. Um, and of course, we may miss some alterations. So for example, AR amplifications or mutations can occur during the course of the disease and under the pressure, selective pressure of treatment. And so I think in time, we will see that it will become more important to sort of have a more contemporaneous look at the molecular profile of the tumor. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does that answer the question? I think so. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, and so then the, the last thing I want to bring up in this section is, which we could spend literally another hour or two on, is the role of next-gen imaging, molecular, molecular imaging in, in this setting. Um, it's a big deal. It's, this is coming. It's going to be FD approved in just about any setting, I think. Um, Ali, what do, you, what do you think? Where are we yeah, going? I, I think it's a, it's a caution is the word that I would say. It's, it's going to be approved on primary staging of patients undergoing radical treatment and also in the recurrent setting. So it's obviously going to cause what a, a yet another um, Will Rogers phenomenon in urology once again in terms of stage migration. So I think what it happens here in the M1 disease will be patients, let's say conventional imaging, their localized high-risk disease, and the PET shows a distant disease. Is that an M1 or is that a high risk that we used to treat in radiotherapy, for example, and the hormones would take care of that node in the retroperitoneal area? And I think there's no good answer for that yet. And in, the, uh, and, and in the recurrent setting will be exactly the same thing. So I think in the, in the recurrent setting, the question now is a biochemical recurrence after treatment, we know is a pure surrogate of meaningful outcomes, while metastasis occurrence by conventional imaging is a good surrogate of overall survival. Where does recurrence unveiled by PET only falls within this subspectrum? Is it closer to a biochemical recurrence that might be not meaningful for the patient lifespan, or is it closer to the conventional imaging? And it's probably going to be not a yes or no type of answer. There's probably going to be indolent recurrences, which were some of the biochemical recurrence that now pick up on PET, and we'll have to learn which one of those actually are meaningful and which ones aren't. But I think it's important to know the evidence that we have today and the trials and the survival benefits hinge on conventional imaging. So doing the extrapolation may lead you to withhold treatments of benefit or give treatments with unproven benefits. So I think first do not harm should be the mentality as this field kind of evolves. That's a great message. Yeah, first do no harm. That's that, that, that's very well said. I'll tell you, I mean, we have PSMA PET here. Um, we use it frequently in the biochemical recurrence setting. And I, I would say that every single one of our tumor boards every week, we have at least one or two cases at, at something like this, and it's very controversial and we don't have enough data and we desperately need data. And, and of course, we just wanna do the right thing by the patient, but we don't know what the right thing is truly. And we have to go with the data that we have, just like you said, first do no harm. Um, so let's let's go, um, I'm gonna take the liberty of going with it, keeping the discussion going till eight, and then we'll do the post-test questions after that because uh, I do want to go over at least one or two cases to illustrate a couple issues. And so 
Um, let's talk. Let's talk about a seventy-year-old gentleman with newly newly diagnosed high volume uh, MHSPC. He's got multiple vertebral mets. He's got a liver met. No prior primary therapy. He's got good performance status. He complains of back pain. I just want to really. I want to kind of drill down the best I can on Anastat in terms of how you think about different treatments. How, how do you review it with yeah. patients? How do you conceptualize this in your mind? What do you do? So, um, so you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the volume of disease and the implications as to the benefits of treatment. I think, um, uh, you know, that's that's something to consider. But looking at the overall uh, population, there's really, as we said earlier, we shouldn't really be doing cross-trial comparisons. There's only one sort of prospective contemporaneous uh, uh, comparison between docetaxel and abiraterone in this setting, and that was done by the Stampede group, right? So they had the control arm, which was ADT alone, and then they had the ADT plus docetaxel and the ADT plus abiraterone. And during a period of time of about a couple of years, they were randomizing uh, at the same time to both of these arms. And so in that comparison, which again was contemporaneous, was uh, randomized and, and not selected, there really was no evidence of any difference in overall or prostate cancer specific survival between docetaxel and abiraterone. So I think that in terms of, of um, uh, efficacy, we have no data to support one agent over another. So then it goes to the question of volume, which I sort of addressed. Again, uh, the Stampede group looked at um, the volume of disease and its impact on benefit from abiraterone or docetaxel in these two uh, uh, arms, and they did not find that distinction. As you all know, the charted was actually stratified for the high volume, but we've highlighted uh, the, the differences in the population. So it would still be acceptable to, uh, to treat a patient with low volume disease with docetaxel in my mind. So what I, I usually will sit down with patients and we'll go through four, all four options. And we talk about the impact of comorbidities. So if you have a severe cardiac history or hard to control hypertension, you probably don't wanna go on uh, enzalutamide or apalutamide. If you have diabetes that is difficult to control, you probably don't wanna do abiraterone and prednisone. If you're on warfarin or some of the antiarrhythmics or some of the drugs that have interactions with enzalutamide or apalutamide, probably choose one of the others. If you have a poor performance status patient, maybe they'll do poorly with docetaxel. Maybe you would want to choose uh, the, the other one. I think one thing that it, in my, at least for me, has been uh, you know, more and more in, in, in my mind is this issue of financial toxicity. Um, and so I think being aware of how much it's going to cost your patient uh, to go on that trial is is uh, certainly important. But those are the considerations that I make when I'm trying to pick a, a treatment uh, for a patient. Uh, again, it's not based on a perception of efficacy. Super, thank you. Um, there's a question that, that I also want to pose to Anna, Anna here that is asking about angiogen blockade, really with some of the new angiogen targeting agents and whether we can do it, it was intermittent something we can consider in this, with, with those drugs. 
So there are two questions on the tent that I think are, are interesting. One is whether you should, there's a role for bicalutamide on the first generation antiandrogens. And I would argue that the answer to that question is no, because for years we compared uh, GNRH analogs to uh, with or without bicalutamide, with or without flutamide, with or without, and you know, at the end we put them all together and there was like, what, maybe a 3% improvement in overall survival, and what does that really mean, right? So in the sense, so if you think that your patient needs combination therapy, bicalutamide's probably not your drug. Having said that, one thing that we haven't mentioned is that per perhaps for certain patients, an LHRH agonist or antagonist alone, uh, could be considered. So I want to remind people of the SWOG 9346 trial, which was done back in the day when, when I was young, uh, and before docetaxel was approved for metastatic castrate resistance, uh, prostate cancer even. And for patients that achieved a PSA, uh, an undetectable PSA of less than 0.2 after six or seven months of, of, of treatment, uh, the median overall survival was in excess of five years. We just discussed a little bit what median survivals we had seen in these uh, trials. So I do think that there may be a role for um, for LHR agonists or antagonists alone in, in certain patients, particularly if they have uh, uh, high comorbidities. In terms of the intermittent therapy, um, I, you know, I'm begging every company to please invest in doing trials that will tell us because I am convinced that there are some patients that will should benefit from intermittent hormone therapy or maybe even possibly uh, you know uh, androgen receptor inhibitors alone um, and you know I think that for a subset of prostate cancers it will what we're what we have to try to do is to do um, systemic therapy sparing uh, treatment uh, schedules but we don't have the data so can't comment really awesome. Oh, yeah, great answers. Um, so thank you again, everybody. <laughs>